Welcome to Reconciled Church Miami, Pastor Aldo Leon. In Philippians 2, 5-11, we talked about the gospel. And we were talking about the gospel because of the command before that to basically think about one another. So as Paul talks about thinking about one another, he then goes to the gospel. And then right after the gospel, he then goes into the principles that we get from the gospel. What kind of guidelines do we get from the gospel? And that's what we did in Philippians 2, 12 to 13. But in our verses now, Paul makes a little bit of a transition. He begins to talk about the culture that the gospel creates, the expectations. All right. This is the gospel. These are the guidelines. And now we get to what that actually produces. So we would say, how do I understand the gospel's work? What does it produce? What does it look like? This is where we're at. Um, and you need to understand that, that, that framework because if you begin to think that these are the things you must do, but you don't, you don't remember that, wait, there was gospel guidelines first. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that came from the work of Christ. Then you're going to kind of under, misunderstand this. But, but this is the culture that the gospel creates. It's kind of like you go into a Mexican restaurant, you have certain expectations. You're going to have some, some chips and some dip, some spicy sauce. You're going to have some fajitas, you know, Right? That's the culture that that kitchen will produce. Uh, you know, Cuban restaurants, you know, they have certain things. You know, you got to have, you know, una medianoche in there. You got to have croquetas. You got to have tostones. You got to have cafe, right? That's the culture that those restaurants produce. So, so what exactly is the culture the gospel produces so that we know that it's actually, you know, not a Cuban restaurant, not a Mexican restaurant, but a church. And here we have a set of culture principles, so to speak. The first one, I want to talk about what is the culture of the gospel. The first culture uh, tenet, so to speak, is we have a culture of simplicity. That's the first thing we'll see here. Second thing is we have a culture of rescue. Second thing you see. Third thing, we have a culture of dependence. It's another tenet of Christian culture from the gospel. Uh, fourthly, we have a culture of eternity. And lastly, we have a culture of radical sacrifice. So these are, the Mexican restaurant has these things, a Cuban restaurant has these This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ produces from the kitchen of the gospel, so to speak. Y'all with me? All right, so first thing, culture of simplicity. I get that from verse 14. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. <laughs> you hear, you hear, did you hear what that verse said? Do everything without complaining or grumbling. You wouldn't think that that would be the first thing Paul would go and what we are called to experience in the gospel. Um, so the first way I unpack that, what does it mean that we have a culture of simplicity? It means that we are about doing things that are impossible. You know that. You cannot complain. That's impossible for you to do. And if I give you two pictures, one picture is of a six-foot wall that I, you know, I could get over with work, and the other is a picture of a 600-foot wall that I could never get over. Now, which wall are we going to pick? Six-foot one, right? Because we're going to pick the thing that we could naturally do, right? That's just how we are. And we're like that in Christianity. We pick a morality that we could do, right? We won't go here. Oh, man, I want to be godly. I won't come. I, I got to not complain. We won't go there. We won't go there. We'll, go, we'll, we'll do the six-foot wall, you know. I, for me, you know, the standard of Christianity is I don't kill people. You know, I don't walk around cheating on my wife. I won't say really bad words, just somewhat bad words. I won't drink alcohol. I won't smoke, right? That's godliness for you, right? <laughs> um, you know, I won't do horrible things to my kids. I just will ignore them all the time. You know, beat them up, you know. I'll keep my house clean, right? I won't steal things. Just, just, just movies, 
just movies, you know. I'll just steal a movie. But I won't steal, like, big stuff, you know. I won't walk into the mall and, like, pickpocket. You know, I won't to do that. And, and <laughs> that's easy. You can do all those things without the Holy Spirit. You can. But not to grumble and complain is something that is absolutely impossible. And we're about doing things that we could never do by ourselves. That's Christianity. <laughs> um, because grumbling and complaining really just manifests what you're trusting in, what you're believing in, what you're hoping in mostly. That's what really it manifests. So we in the church have a culture of simplicity. That means we embrace things that we could never, ever do in our own strength because when we realize that there's things that we could never do, it brings us to the conclusion that only Christ and his grace could produce this. And as I realize this is what I'm called to do and I see I can't ever do it, it brings me deeper into Christ and it brings me to enjoy Christ because I have Christian standards that are impossible in the flesh. Very quiet. Y'all follow me? <laughs> we are about doing things that are absolutely impossible in ourselves so that we could find ourselves being absolutely needy of the power of grace. And you know what? When <laughs> grumbling, complaining is what you're seeking to uh, abide by, you realize that. You know that. You know, but it's the, it's the gospel speaks to this because, you know, I'm always complaining because I see things that I don't like and I see things that are not okay and I see things that I want. But the gospel tells you that everything about Jesus Christ is perfect and that everything about him has been enough and that he has given you a perfect love, a perfect status, a perfect identity, his perfect obedience, his perfect sacrifice, his all triumphant resurrection. Everything about Jesus Christ is set in stone and fixed so you can rest content. Yes, my life sucks. Yes, this is bad. Yes, it's not what I like, but, but Jesus is all sufficient. So it's okay. But there's something else about the culture of simplicity. It means that the how and the who takes priority over the what. The how and the who. Paul says, doesn't say go and do this particular activity. He says, how you carry yourself in your activities is what I want you to focus on. We tend to have a kind of Disney World kind of Christianity. You know, it's kind of like we go to Disney World. We go to this nice, awesome place. It's really expensive. And we spend the whole time fighting each other, you know, annoying each other or ignoring each other. But it's like who cares if you're in Disney World if the dynamic there is a mess? Now, take that into the Christian Life. We think that Christianity is primarily, look, primary. look, these things are not bad, okay? But they're bad when they're not understood in light of what Paul is adding to this. We think the Christian life is about having Disney World experience. So they, oh, I had this out-of-body vision, this amazing worship experience where I forgot myself. That's Christianity. Or we think, you know, it's, it's, about, I got, it's about going to a missions trip in a radical place for two weeks. Or we think it's about, you know, going to downtown, going to the hood, and doing some, like, radical service. Or we think, you know, uh, Christianity is probably about leading a, a Bible study. Leading a Bible study. Being a pastor. Or, you know, uh, I don't know. Just, just doing something formal like that. Preaching a sermon. Oh, man, I would really just feel spiritual if I could just preach a sermon in front of people, you know? But what Paul is saying <laughs> is that you doing regular things in contentment is really what the focus of your Christian life is about. You know, you want to be, be radical? You want to be, you know, gospel-focused? Then go do groceries in contentment in the gospel, Live in your house in contentment in the gospel. Have meals with contentment in the gospel. Have conversations. Go to work. You know, eat cereal with gospel contentment. It's not about these Disney World kind of mountaintop Christian experiences. That's not Christianity. It's about you just doing regular things in a gospel-satisfied way. Which is why Jesus says, hey, you want, you, you want to talk about eternal rewards? Give someone a cup of cold water. What? A 
cold water. How about send me to Zimbabwe? Give someone a cup of cold water. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the culture of simplicity. You know, we all want to be spiritual theologians and we all want to be leaders and activists and missionaries. Try just living with your family and your friends and your neighbors like someone who's contending Christ. <laughs> I'm not saying those things are bad. You see, the gospel is this massive, huge thing. It's this huge, colossal thing that gives me these massive things, you know, like adoption and, and, and like blood forgiveness in, in Christ and, you know, perfect righteousness in Christ. And you know what? Because it's so big, I can just do regular things and think it's enough. I don't always have to be doing this like great, you know, oh, radical thing because the gospel is big enough. I can just think, you know what? Maybe God wants me to have a content and healthy relationship with the people around me and seek God's grace for that. Obviously, this is what the gospel produces, and he keeps saying that. So we have a culture of simplicity. It means that we take a part of the who over the what. But there's something else. It means that morality is more about family than morality. You say, why do you say that? Well, it says in Philippians... Be, uh, do not complain. Wait, where am I? I lost my place in the Bible. Okay. All right, verse 14. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure children of God. Children of God. That's, why I, that's where I get that point from. Um, let me give you a picture of how we view morality and behavior in the church. We, we, we view morality and be- Picture the person in the mirror checking themselves out, you know, like that. Picture a person with the iPhone. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got, I got, I got to fix that junk and change it. You know, okay, that's the angle. Picture that. Or picture the person in the gym. You know the person in the gym, he's like, <laughs> you know, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's the way we view Christian morality, I think, a lot of times. You know, uh, it's, it's, something, it's something that we flaunt around and we want everyone to see and we hang it over people's heads when, you know, they bother us or something. But this, this, this living a you know, life of, of, of contentment in Christ, Christian behavior, so to speak, it's more about being a child. What is a child? It's someone who's been created by somebody else. What is your godliness about? I was made by grace production by a father and son and spirit. Uh, Christian morality, when it's more about being a child, it means, you know, you know what my morality is? It's, it's about be, being loved by a father. What is godliness about? What is your transformation about? Because someone loves me by just no conditions. That's what it's about. It's not about me in the mirror. I'm loved by God. That's what my godliness is about. It's about being loved, being created. It's about me having an affection for my father, not me walking around, you know, being all spiritual and like holy. Why do you do these things? Why do you want to live, you know, a holy life? Because I love the father who loves me. That's Christian morality. It's a family type of thing, you know. We're not holy meatheads or... Holy models or holy beauty queens flaunting around our... We are little kids who've been created and loved and cherished by an awesome father. That's what Christian culture, simple kids just loving their father's love, that's what our morality, that's what our godliness is about. So culture of simplicity, unpack that. Now we go to a culture of rescue. I'm warning you for this one. I'm going to step on your toes, but I just preach what the Lord gives. That's not me. Look what it says in verse 15. Um, So you may be blameless and pure, children of God, who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. It's all about us being in a lost world in the midst of it. So, 
What does it mean for us, the church, to be a culture of rescue? Firstly, it means that we identify, not isolate. See the words here? You in the midst of a perverse generation and you among whom you shine like stars in the world. Okay? Jesus, how did Jesus save us? He left heaven and he entered into humanity. He, like, he lived and breathed as a human and he was living around sinners. Everyone he was around was a sinner all the time. That's what he did. And I think for us, we see ourselves more like, we see kind of engaging and connecting with lost people more like going to the zoo. You know, you go there and you see like the dangerous animals and you talk about it with your family and you take some pictures and you go home. That's what we're more like as Christians, I think. Just being real. But, but God is saying that you in the midst of a perverse generation. You are shining among lost people. That means you in their face. You like connected to them. You around them. That's who we are as Christians. That's the culture that we have. We're not people who put nice little Christian fences and have nice little safely Christian cliques while the world around us is lost. That's not who we are. That's not a Christian culture. Look at lostness from afar. You know, I think, or we're not people who set ourselves up in, you know, trophy cases from a distance. We are those who are in the midst of it, you know. <laughs> and I say a few things to think about as we think about it. You know, we're not, we're not more holy than Jesus, are we? We're not more, why? We're not more holy than Jesus, are we? I'm amazed at how Christians want to be holier than Jesus. Like I said, I'm, I'm just stepping on your toes a little bit. I love you, church. You know, like, Jesus had a reputation of being around sinners. And they like to be around him. You know what happens to Christians? We have a reputation for, like, not being the friends of sinners, not being around them. Like, oh, you know, like, I'm saved and I'm over that. But, but you're holier than Christ, right? Christ was amongst lost people all the time. Dude walked to Samaria to talk to one lost woman. I mean, he could have walked around Samaria like everybody else. All the holy Jews walked around, avoid like the heathens. He went there just to engage a lost woman. <laughs> you know, and guys, another thing to think about as we think about a culture of rescue, meaning we identify not isolates. You know why you can be around sinners all the time that are lost? Because you a sinner. You're saved, but, but, but let me ask you a question. Do you sin on a daily basis? Do you obey perfectly on a daily basis? So that means every day of your life, you are someone in a sense who needs to be rescued by a perfect savior. But you can't hang around with a sinner who's lost? Why? You know what makes me unable to sit? You know, it was amazing because I used to be one of those people who was too holy for people to be lost around me. I realized, oh my gosh, like every day of my life, I need a radical cross-bearing savior. So you know what? I think I could be around y'all because I'm the same in some ways. Another thing I think is helpful to think about is that I think we Christians, we think that we can be godly and we can be holy because we avoid worldly people. You know what that is? That, that's externalistic, shallow Christianity. You're not holy because you avoid unholy people. You're holy because you find yourself in Christ. <laughs> you know why? Because the problem's not out there. It's in you. You're the problem. I'm the problem. I can be away from all the worldly people, and I still have a sin problem that dwells in my heart. You're not going to be protected from the world by hiding from the world. You're protected from the world by being sanctified in the blood and resurrection of Christ. So Jesus said, I don't, don't take them out of the world, but keep them in your name. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's amazing how many people think that they're going to be godly because they avoid, you know, the world and worldly people. And yet they don't even think about how God truly preserves us. Now, you have to be cautious with that, right? There is parameters for that, but, but this text is very clear. 
<laughs> so let me give you some practical things to think about. Man, this is going to be a long sermon. Sorry. Like I said, there's a lot of things here that I think we, I think we don't normally talk about. <laughs> that means <laughs> your time, church, beloved, your time should be dedicated to engaging and having relationships with people who don't know Christ. When you die, God's not going to, did you really get all that personal time that you wanted? Did your kids get the grades that you wanted them to get? Did they play enough sports? They're not going to ask us, what did you do as a rescued person amongst lost people? Our time. What about our location? You know, I think a lot, oh, you know, like, I feel like Christians in Miami are always talking bad about Miami, and like, I hate Miami, and I don't want to be in Miami. We are people who are in the midst of lostness. We engage lostness. We're all up in it. And we're always talking about how we can't stand Miami because it's lost. That's not a Christian attitude. That's not a Christian culture. If you see yourself in light of the gospel, you should be like, I love Miami because people that are lost are here and I'm saved around them. That's the Christian culture. Man, there's so many dead and lost people here. Praise God, because I am called as a rescuing person for lost people. Not to make an exodus to some biblical Bible Belt place. A bunch of phony Christians anyway. This means that we love this city because it's lost. And we pray for this city because it's lost. And we labor in this city because it's lost. That's what it means to be a culture of rescue. These people that are just always complaining about worldliness. That's not us. That's not Christ. It means that our relationships should be with people who don't know Christ. That means when this church has events where we engage with lost people, you should be there. You shouldn't find, oh, I got, I got something to do. When we go to find lost people intentionally, you should be there. And not just go to the show up, but to actually get to know someone because we're in the midst of this stuff. We're connected. We are in the midst of a perverse generation. That means we have to have relationships with people who are lost. Not just kind of, you know, make like a showing of ourselves and then step out the back door. Wasn't it so good that I went to Agape and sung songs? No. No. There's people there. Relationships there. You know what, and, and, and let, me, let, me, let me just stop and say, you know, I don't care about lost people all the time. I don't. I'm a church planner. I don't care about lost people. But you know what that does for me? Oh, Christ, you know my indifference to lostness. And you love me nonetheless. And you carry me nonetheless. And you approve of me nonetheless. God, would you allow the radical forgiveness of the cross? Would you please, Lord, by your grace, give me the ability to love lost people because I don't. That's, that's what we do as Christians when we engage this. We don't like, oh, I'm guilty. I can't, uh, you know, like maybe I should go, let me go literally give a gospel track to make myself feel better. No, no. We, we say, God, I don't care about lost people, but you care about me. And may that engage and transform me. May that move me because it doesn't. I'll give another practical application of this. We're plant, we, we planted a church here. We're planting a church here. You know what that, you know, but you know what that means? That there's going to be a time, Lord willing, where we'll plant another church. Why? Because there's lost people all over Miami. And there's no gospel all over Miami. And so you better believe that I'm going to kick some of y'all out of here to go somewhere else where there's lostness to live there and labor there for people that are lost and know Christ. Like, oh, are you going to leave our church? Why leave in our church? No, that's not our culture. That's not our culture. We are rescuers or rescued who seek to be, you know, a part of other people begin to say that means we have practical things that, that, that flush itself out. All right, I gotta move on. That means that we are realist, not idealist. Realist, not idealist. Look what it says. Paul says, in the mix of a crooked and perverted generation. You know, like the, the word pervert, it's a disgusting person. 
Well, Paul's saying that this generation has always been, always will be perverted and crooked. Okay? Um, and we as Christians need to realize that and be honest about that. Let me give you an illustration that may help. How would you feel if you had stage four cancer and you went to a doctor and they're like, I think you're sick. I think you're not 100%. And I think you may need some help. It's like, what's wrong with you? You know what I need someone to tell me when I have stage four cancer? You're going to die. And if you don't go into the operating room and get some radical intervention, you dead. That's a realist, not an idealist. Where am I going with that? <laughs> Us being a culture of rescue means that we tell the culture and the world what it really is. We don't sit over here and gloss and act trite and light because we want people to like us and feel better. We tell them that you, everything about your life outside of cross, outside of Christ, makes everything absolutely hopeless. You have nothing outside of Christ. You are guilty. You are condemned. You are under the wrath of God and there is no hope for you outside of Christ. You are a rebel. We are real with people. That's how we love people. We realists, not idealists. <laughs> Crooked and perverse generation. You know, I, we, I'm amazed in the church. We want people to be saved, but we don't want them to be lost. Right? Right? We want everyone saved, but we don't want nobody lost. Hey, God loves you. But we don't tell them that God is angry and wrathful and hatred, has hatred towards the sinner. Hey, God has a plan for your life. And we don't tell them you are guilty under the fierce justice of God. We want to save people. We don't want them lost. And Paul's saying, you know what you guys are, are as a culture of rescue? Y'all tell the truth. You tell the truth because you love people. And you don't want people to be, you know, comfortable in their sins. We say, listen, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You are under the wrath of, of God Almighty and his holiness. You are dead and lost and hopeless. But Christ has made a provision for you in your lostness. Be real. And you say, man, how can I be so real about people? How can I be so raw to people? You know why you can be so raw to people? Because you don't got to make people happy. You got to make, Christ is already happy with you. I can be real with people and I can say these things from a pulpit because Christ is fully delighted in me. He's celebrating my life because of his life and he's perfectly satisfied. So you know what? I can be the stupid fool who tells you the truth. Because it don't matter what you think about me. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to be the doctor who tells you you're going to die a horrendous death. And hell is waiting to swallow you up. And Christ is your remedy. Your perfect remedy. Your full remedy. Your grace remedy. That's what we do as Christians. Yes. Yes. But let me tell you something. I've been a Christian long enough. To know that being real about lostness is seen as being unloving by Christians. It is. We want, like I said, we want to gospelize and save people, but we don't want them to be lost. And that's not biblical. That's not Christian. So, obviously, all these things go together. You know, the attitudes and dispositions. But, but we are those who are realists, not idealists. Why? Because we want people to know Christ. And we want them to stay with Christ. You know what? If you tell people, hey, man, God just wants to help you. God wants to fix you. God wants to heal you. You know what's going to happen when your life still sucks as a Christian? You're going to walk away. But if Christ is my wrath-bearing substitute, he's the one who pardons me in my guilt. He's the one who clothes me in his righteousness. I'm never turning away from that. Whether my life has purpose or not. Whether it's easy or not. Y'all follow me? So, anyways, I was, I'm long at every point. We, we are, <laughs> means we are rescued as we seek rescue. We are rescued as we seek rescue. I love how some things say things in a certain way. 
it says, as you are shining like stars. But if you look at it in the original language, it literally says, those who are being caused to shine. So the idea is this, that you shine gospel graces because God is making that happen. And let me give you a picture that may help you. I already lost my voice, and I'm like in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> it's not going to matter. I'm just going to have to be quiet. You know, like a light bulb? A light bulb is this little tiny piece of glass. It has nothing in itself, you know. But the second you connect it to this power source, it lights up the whole room. Can you imagine a light bulb saying, man, look at my shine. Look at how I light this. It's, it's silly, right? Because it's, it's really just some little piece of glass. Then when it's connected to something powerful, it just shines. So what does this mean? Us being a culture of rescue, that means that we around people that need to be saved in the same way. People may say, hey, man, I see that your life is different. I see that the way you're with your family is different. I see you talk different. I see your swagger is different. And we're not going to say, you know, well, well, because, you know, I'm a Christian and, uh, you know, I just do godly things. And I decided to be a godly person, and I decide every day. No, 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 no. So they say, what's that about? <laughs> I got nothing, y'all. I have nothing. I'm nobody, but, but I've been plugged into this radical, gracious Christ who loves me. And that's what this is about. Yeah. Let me tell you something. That gets people's attention. And, this, and you know... If we, don't, if we don't live around lost people with that attitude, you know what people are going to think when we just talk about ourselves and our, our efforts? People are going to think, I guess if I'm going to be saved, I just got to act like that guy. I just got to do what he does. But if we say, what's this about? It's about him. And me being this little wretched piece of glass that gets plugged into a powerful, all-sufficient life source. That's what that's about. Hallelujah. Then they're going to be like, well, I guess I need that Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. That's what I mean. So we are about, we are rescued as we seek rescue. And here's one more. Um, we are a counterculture in the culture. <laughs> um, this is a, anyway, this is going to be a hard one too. It says we shine like stars in the midst of the world. You know, you know where, where does a star shine? In a place where it's absolutely black and dark. There's no light around it. So you look around like, uh, black, black, star. Okay? That means, let me give you an illustration. <laughs> we actually function as different people as we are amongst lost people. It's almost, you know, I think sometimes a lot of Christianity is kind of like this. You know, like, if you put a, if you put a band sticker on a, on a Honda, does it make it a Honda? No. This is what we do. This is what we do in Miami, I think, a lot. Um, we, we, we put a Jesus sticker on worldliness and say that's Christian. In the same way, you put a Ben sticker on a Honda, it don't make it a Honda. You put a Jesus sticker on worldliness, it don't make it Christian. Church, and I say this, here, there's, there's a passage I think it's helpful of reading. Um, here, listen, listen, listen to Titus 2.11. Listen to this text. For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. okay. Grace has appeared. Grace. What does it do? It instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Sometimes I think that, that when, when we talk about grace and gospel, you, people may get the impression that that means just be worldly and say, Jesus, forgive you. No, no, no. Paul's saying that we must be people that are a counterculture in the midst of the culture that we live in, as sinners who are being transformed by grace, not as saints who are being, you know, perfected by works, so to speak. You know, that means that in the, in the midst of a world that's always complaining and bitter about everything, we are content because of who we are in Christ. That means that when the whole world is always bragging about how great they are and how awesome they are, we are silent because we realize that we're only righteous in Christ. We need to live like that around people, be like that around people. That means in a world that's always lying and being dishonest to protect self, we speak truth because we don't need to lie to promote and protect self because we're protected and promoted by the gospel. Hallelujah. I speak truth. And people need to see 
that. The world needs to see that. That means in a world that's all about getting more money, getting more fame, getting more status, people need to see us saying, you know what I want? I want to know Christ. Think, think, man, let, me, let, me, let me put a Jesus sticker on all my materialism and worldliness and say, hey, man, blessed be God. No, 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 no. Paul says you need to be a counterculture in the culture. I'll give you a few more examples. And you know, you know, you know, what, you know what cussing's about? What, what is cussing about? It's about power. Anyway, when someone like makes me feel bad, I say, mother, you know, I'm trying to leverage power because I feel small. And we live in a generation that's always trying to leverage power in their vulgar speech and their smallness. But we don't need to do that. We speak wholesome, righteous, and godly words because Christ has already covered us in his provisions of grace. I have to say that sometimes because I feel like sometimes I'm around Christians and they drop in F-bombs, you know, and they think that's, some, that's like spiritual and that's going to win people to Christ. No, it's not. No, it's not. He says, you are shining like stars in the darkness, not acting like the darkness and saying, Jesus. And that means when I do do sinful things all the time, you know, what that, you know how I shine like a star in the world? I confess and I repent. Not the world. They're always making excuses for their sins, always making excuses. You know what? I suck and I need Christ. That's what I do with my sins. That's how I shine like a star in this world. Everyone's making excuses and saying it's okay. I say, you know what? I'm not okay. That's why I need Jesus. I'll say a few more. In a world that's all about sexuality and sex and sex and pleasure, I say, I live in light of the fact that I'm perfectly loved and pursued and affected by Jesus Christ. In a world that doesn't forgive anybody for, you know, you know that, 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 that football player, what's his name, Kaepernick? You know, you know what I noticed in that whole situation? Good grief, man. When someone does something wrong, we kill them and we kill them a million times. Or I don't, maybe it wasn't wrong. I'm not saying it's, if we think it's wrong. I'm not even making a statement about that. You know, the world just, just kills people for whatever that happens wrong to them. And you know how we live like and shine like a star in this world? We forgive people when they wrong us. Like, why, why do you forgive people that wrong you? It's not, I don't do that. And, you know, again, it shines us back to the gospel. So, so we are a counterculture in the midst of the culture. You know, I, I say this lovingly, church, and graciously. The world does not need more worldliness to have a Jesus stamp on it. They got enough of that. They got enough of that in the church. They got enough of that in preaching. They got enough of that. They need people who shine like stars because people that are sinners who need are hopeless, are being found in the graces of Christ. That's what they need. So moving on. Culture of rescue. Oh, my goodness. It's been 40 minutes. Uh, culture of dependence. It's not. It's, you say it's all right, but everyone else is like, no, it's not. <laughs> like, I got to go to lunch, you know. You're not that good of a preacher. You think you are. <laughs> culture of dependence. Holding fast to the word of life. Now, let me unpack that in a few ways. It means that we are first word trusters before we're anything else. Who are you as Christian? What's the culture? You are those who are clinging to the word. Um, let me give you some pictures. There's, a, la- there's a, a, a picture. There's a raft that's thrown into the water. And uh, <laughs> the first person comes up to it. And they begin, there's a life raft, and they just begin to swim around and do some breaststrokes and all these fancy strokes. That's the first person. The second person gets, a, gets in front of the life, boat at, life raft as they're in the water, and they're like, hmm, it's circular, it's red, and it's white, and it's plastic. And then they begin to talk about it. So that's the second person. The third person sees a life raft, and they get really emotional, excited. Whoa! I'm so excited there's a life raft. The fourth person sees a life raft, and they just grab it. Now, what this text is saying 
is that having a culture of dependence as a church means that we're the fourth person. You all follow me? How do you see the word of God? It's not like, oh, there's a life raft of the word. Let me swim around it and, be, and do great things, right? That's how we act. The word of God is this place for me to perform and do great stuff. No, 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 no. You grab it. You trust it. You cling to it as a needy person saying, oh, I cannot swim. I cannot love. I cannot do. I grab onto the raft of God's grace as I see the word. You're not someone who just studies and talks about the truths of the word. There's a lot of that. I know everything in the word. I can talk about everything in the word. But you know what? You don't grab onto it in faith as a helpless, hopeless person. It's different. That means we're not people who have these like emotional, exciting experiences about, you know, the truth of God's word. No, we, we trust, we lay hold of, and we say, I look to who Christ is for me. I look to his love. I look to his obedience for me. I look to his sacrifice for me. I look to the Holy Spirit. I am coming to the word of God as someone who grabs onto a life vest in dependence. And I think some of the reasons why... We are so much more profoundly messed up than we actually need to be is that we've twisted the word of God to be something that we just swim around, we get emotional around, we just talk about, and we don't just come to the Bible saying, God, Christ, I need you. I need you. As you come to the text of Scripture. So we, we, uh, we are those who are first word trusters. But secondly, it means that the word is simply who we are. There's a way in Scripture to, to, to kind of like make things very personal. So this could literally say, you are those people who trust the word. So it's almost like saying, like, that's a mom or that's, that's a dad. It's just something and it's just who you are. So when Paul says, it's not saying you should trust the word. It's saying that's who you are, okay? By nature, by the grace of God, you are somebody who depends on the word of God. It's like something that's in your DNA as a Christian, Kind of like this, plants by nature and design must be given water and given sunlight, right? That's just who they are. Okay, well, let me bring it very practical. Can you imagine if a plant was like, you know, I, uh, I don't want to, I don't want sunlight and I don't want water. I think I just want to do something else. How does that work? It doesn't work because it's, it's, it's in its nature to need things. Christian, it's in your DNA and nature to be absolutely needy for the word all the time. You know what that means? That, mean, you know, that means that, you know, the word is not some sort of cream on the top that you add to the rest of your life. You know, I think, uh, I think I'll read the word for like five minutes you know that'd be good to add (laughs) i'm someone who needs god to speak grace to me that's who i am it's not cream on the top of the christian life what why do we come to church on sunday every week because i need to hear proclamations of it is finished in all its fullness otherwise i can't live you don't come here because it's the right thing to do like joel said You don't come here because you're a good person. You come here because I live by words from Christ being proclaimed to me. You know, we have all sorts of Bible studies on Wednesdays. We have women's Bible studies. You know what that, those are just opportunities for you to operate how you've been designed to operate. Take in the word. I feel like in Miami, like, if you go to a Bible study, you're like a really radical Christian. No, you're not. That's just a basic Christian. Basic and essential to being a Christian is I need daily, you know, light input from gospel truth. I, I, that's just who I am. So Paul says that, that's practically what it means to be a, 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 live in a culture of dependence. Let's say a few more things. There's a, that means that we are about the qualities, and I skipped one of my points so you guys know that. Um, that, that means we're about the qualities in the word, not the qualities in us. There's a way of saying things in Greek which imply, I'm talking about the qualities of this thing in light of the fact that it has these kind of qualities. So water has yes, yes, yada, 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 yada. 
So what does it mean to depend on the word? It means that you go to the word because of what it has in itself, not because of what you have. Now you say, what does that mean practically? Well, that means that you go to the word, okay? When you have a hard heart, the word, because of what it is, it smashes your hard heart. Okay? You don't go to the word because you have a soft heart. You go to the word because the word smashes your hard heart, okay? Um, that means that when, when, you, when you don't feel convicted of sin and you feel comfortable in sin, the word of God, because of what it has, convicts you of your sin. You think, okay, I need to feel bad about my sin and then come to the word. No, I, if I depend on the word, it convicts me. You follow me? That means that if I have an embarrassing history, I need to come to the word to rewrite my history in Christ. It means if God feels distant and far away, I come to the word of God because in it being spoken to me, I then feel his presence. Because the word has things in itself. It does things to me that I don't have. But I'll move on quickly to the next point. It means that we, have, we need a reviving word, not an informing word word a reviving word not an informing word you say why do you say that look what it says word of oh it's not up there <laughs> word of life don't ever read over scripture casually that that's a very pregnant phrase can i say that in the pulpit <laughs> y'all laughing because maybe i shouldn't uh, let, me give, let me give you two pictures which may help you understand what it means to be dependent as a Christian. One picture is someone giving you advice as you're working out. Hey, yo, yo, you do it like this, you know, kind of like this is the form and like, you know, this way. And the other guy, the other picture is of you being on the bench and you got the bar on you and you can't breathe and it's about to crush your chest. And you're going to die. And then someone comes and picks it up. The second picture is how you need the word of God. You know, we come to scripture like, all right, I'm, you know, I got my strength and I got my disciplines and I got my holiness. God, why don't you come over here and give me some tips? No, no, I am being crushed by the weight of my impotence and I need life by the gospel word. It's the word of life, not the word of helps. That's different, guys. Here, another picture. You go to the doctor, and they say, you know, I think, I, think you, I think you need to work out more. I think you need to eat healthier. So, okay, thank you, doctor. I will work out more. I will go on Jamie's diet. <laughs> Is Tanya on it too? <laughs> She's, what is, is it the 30-day? The whole 30. I will go on Jamie's diet, and I'll be good. That's the first picture. Second picture is a person in the ICU in a coma. And he gets resuscitated. The, the Christian's relationship with the word of God is a second. You're not a healthy person going into the scriptures with a little bit of advice for a nice diet. You're someone, I'm in a coma spiritually. I have no love. I have no desire. I have no passion. I have no humility. I have nothing. I am in a spiritual coma. I hate you, God. I don't desire you, God. And the word of God comes and speaks life into hatred and lovelessness and says, yes, I make you alive by this gospel word. You don't come here healthy. Y'all tracking with me or I sound crazy? That's like God, Paul says, it's the word of life. I mean, like, it brings life to me when I don't have it. I can't stand my wife. All right, it's the word of life. This wonderful word about the graces of God in Christ comes to you in your broken, lost, lifeless moments, and it says live. Because it's the word of life. And it doesn't work. We don't, we don't have this culture of dependence when we're walking around the word like the first picture. So, i got to move on. Two more points. We have a culture of eternity, culture of dependence, a culture of eternity. You say, why do you say that? Look what it says. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I do not run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul says, I want you to be like this so that I can celebrate you in heaven with Jesus. 
um, let, me, let me give you some questions that may help set this up. I'm going to set you up and then, you know, get you. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, all right, got you. Do you ever, when you're going somewhere, do you ever stop before you get somewhere and say, hey, praise God, we made it. Isn't it awesome? Do you do that? No, you, got, you go to the place you're going. Do you ever, um, let me get to my, my last page. Do you, ever, do you ever go to a gym and then do three reps, three reps and you say, man, that was a good workout, and you go home? Y'all laughing. I'm setting you up. <laughs> do you ever, there's one more I think I sketched here. Go to a restaurant, you sit down, they bring you the water, you drink it, and then you go home and you say, wow, that was a great meal. I got you now. You guys are laughing. I guess I got you. We do that in the Christian life when we don't have a culture of eternity. God has, the gospel has purchased for us something already that awaits us in heaven, and we're trying to stop and celebrate like we're already there now, and you're not supposed to. She's like, the, the, the joy that you experience in this life will never be what it should be now. You're like, oh man, like, I'm not really, like, happy all the time, and I don't feel joy all the time. Like, you're not in heaven? Yeah. Because you live in light of eternity, not in light of now. <laughs> you know, or, you know, man, like, I, I feel like, my transformation is, like, really, like, not that much. And, like, I feel like I want to be, like, always, like, honoring the Lord and, like, always, like, sacrificing, like, being in heaven. Yeah, yeah, like that. That's later. The ultimate hope that you have is not how great you'll be transformed now, but I have an ultimate hope that in the future, in glory, in the presence of Christ, I will be all that I need to be. We live that way. Or, you know, you may think, man, you know, I invest in people a lot. And, you know, I don't get much return. Okay, well, you'll experience the fullness of that someday, but not today. That's why Paul says in the resu- about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, labor, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Or you may think, man, like, I really just don't feel good about my life financially. Like, I really don't feel great about how, how well my family is and how, how, how well, like, this is. You know, like, like oh, so, so you're saying your family, your finances, and your life is not heaven, right? Okay, that's good. That's good because you, you, you were wired to find this kind of contentment that is anticipating an eternal future. And I think this is very important for Christians because, look, you know why we're so depressed sometimes? You know why we're so sad? Like, oh, my husband's not heaven. My job is not heaven. My kids are not heaven. Yes, they're not. And you live in light of the fact and you anticipate and you're like longing and you're like waiting for the fact that one day in the future you will have all the joy and delight that you are waiting for you in Christ. Don't be so sad that heaven's not heaven now. It's not supposed to be. We live in a culture of eternity. You know, I'm a pastor, so this is like really hits home for me. It's like, man, like people like don't show up and and, and people don't like me. And and like, you know, people are mean to each other. And like, you know, I'm wondering like when that will change. When they're all dead. When you're dead. We're supposed to live that way, not Obviously, not, not, not like, okay, well, I guess I won't seek anything. I won't seek grace now, joy now. But, but it's always waiting for you in the future. In the same way, you don't stop in the middle of the trip and just say, all right, let's celebrate the drive this point. So we live in light of eternity as Christians. Last point. And it wasn't as long as I thought it'd be. So praise God. <laughs> hey, I saw that. I saw that really hard, uncontrollable laugh. Culture of radical sacrifice. Look at verse 17. Even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, 
I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So this is a picture Paul's painting here. In the Old Testament, you would have sacrifices. In order to make the sacrifices smell better and, you know, burn nice, you know, aroma, you would pour out a drink on it. So Paul's saying, something being consumed in me, something ending in me, will be useful to be poured out on your sacrifice of faith. Make sense? To David. So, look, we primarily see sacrifice in the church this way. You know, you know Luke 18? Remember Luke 18, the Pharisee? I thank you, God, that I have given this to you. And I have provided that for you. And I have sacrificed this. That's how we primarily see. We see sacrifice in the church primarily about us making these great sacrifices for God. You know what I'm saying? That's why everyone's like, I need to die to myself. But Paul's saying, I'm being burnt up for your sacrifice. <laughs> so what Paul's saying, you know what, you know what the, you know what the culture in the church is? You know what the gospel really produces in you? You get stepped on on the way to the altar so someone else can worship Christ. You ever heard that before? You a stepping stone for someone else to step on you to have gospel faith worship. That means that you're going to have to be stepped on for the sake of others, gospel worship and faith. I'll give you, another, I'll give you a few pictures to maybe help you understand it. <laughs> That means that you will need to be consumed by anxiety and fear and depression again and again and again. So that as God sustains you in that, you then, in being sustained by Christ's graces, can then help somebody believe in Jesus more profoundly as you get stepped on in those things. That means that as you, many of you are going to attempt things for God, you're going to do things for God in this church, You're going to attempt things for God, and you're going to fail. And this text tells me that, man, maybe God wants me to fail so that he shows me that my Savior and my Messiah and my hope is not my successful attempts, but it is the successes of Jesus. So I had to learn that. I had to experience that. I had to be poured out so that I could tell someone as they're attempting things about gospel faith. We don't think that way. But Paul says this is the culture of sacrifice that we have in the church. I'll give you a few more examples. <laughs> this is personal to me. Um, I don't know if I should say this in front of a church, but whatever. Um, the church planning situation for me has been really hard. I feel like some of you know the bigger story, like all the way back to like moving here and PRC and everything. But I feel like I have been just beat to a pulp every week of this church plant. Like I just feel like, like a hobbling cripple. And I think, if in my natural self, I think, all right, well, you know, God, how do you help me, like, you know, you know be this flagrant, fragrant offering? And, 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 and this text tells me, you know what it tells me? I want you to be beat up. I want you to be consumed. I want you to be dragged to the mud so that you can be an encouragement to faith to other men planting churches. And I experienced that this week. When I went there and, and, and I was assessing couples and I was speaking to them and encouraging them, I was like, oh my goodness. Like getting the crap beat out of me and being sustained by God's graces is making me able to be a nice little drink offering to help that man trust in the gospel of Christ and his difficulty. That's awesome. All of a sudden, all the things, you know, me and Rebecca had really hard years of marriage. She knows she was married to me. Just being consumed and just being weary and being broken. And you know what? God's sovereign, kind, grace to selfish people carried us through that so that we could teach people about gospel faith in that situation. That's the culture of the church. Not everybody trying, all right, God, make me the flagrant offering as I have victory and strength and ease. No, God, let me be stepped on, trampled, beat down, 
cut to the ground so that you could sustain me by your powerful sovereign grace so that I could help believers say Christ is enough. That's the culture of the church. And I have to say this, even though I, I know you know this, guys, as you think about all these things, you think about we're a culture of dependence. As you think about we're a culture of simplicity, you think about we're a culture of eternity, we're a culture of rescue, we're a culture of radical sacrifice. Just This is, this is what I want to leave you with. Christ loves you already. He's done everything that you need to do already. He's excited over who you are already in his son. That's the last word. That's the last word as you consider what the gospel actually produces and calls us to be about as a Christian culture. Christ loves you. He enjoys you. He's accomplished everything for you. And now understand all that in light of that. Father, uh, thank you for just... Thank you that the final word in every word is always Jesus Christ is the Alpha, the Omega, the last Adam, the it for everything. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity about what the gospel really does in us and what we expect in the culture of, of what, you're, what you prepare for us in Christ. And, Father, I pray that as we fall short of all these things every day, that you would just bring us back to Christ over and over again. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes our message, and we hope that you were inspired by it. If you'd like to hear more about the gospel or find out more about Reconciled Church Miami, please connect with us using one of the ways listed on our website, reconciledchurchmiami.org.